God. We're in Romans chapter 7. You will definitely need a Bible today. We will be reading a lot of verses out of the book of Romans. Ushers will be coming up the way. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand because you're definitely going to need one. Romans chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for our time of worship, God. Think of the awesomeness, Lord, that you meet your people, that you draw near to us. Just even in that last song, just the sense, Lord, that you're being glorified in our midst, Lord, that you're very near, God, and very, so the sense you just very much want to give of your power to your people. And Lord, I just pray, God. We are your sheep, Lord, and we, many of us are broken, many of us are tired and afflicted and weary, some of us have strayed, some may be losing hope, some may be confused, Lord. I just pray, God, that you would impart your power, you would bring healing, you would bind up the wounded, Lord, you would strengthen the faint-hearted, Lord. Lord, you are our shepherd. Come and have your way. I just pray that you would use this time as we meditate on your word. God, help me to even not even be seen, Lord, but that you would just be moving in the midst of us, being the great shepherd that you are, ministering to every heart which you know so intimately. God, we're here because we want to experience you. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So, <clears throat> typically we teach uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, unless someone's filling in, and then we often teach topically. So it's my goal in this message to give you a summary of the doctrine of salvation as Paul presents it in the book of Romans. We're going to be in the book of Romans. Now, if you're a new believer, my recommendation for you is try to finish reading the New Testament first. But after you've read through the New Testament, you should probably uh, plan to spend some time in Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Romans. 
Galatians is one of Paul's earlier writings and has many of the elements that he ends up expanding onto the book of Romans. And Romans, of course, is one of his latter writings and uh, is often thought of as like the most exhaustive uh, expression that Paul gives on the essence of salvation, the relationship that a believer has to God under both the old and the new covenant, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, the purpose of the law, the role of the Holy Spirit in a new covenant believer's life. And it's my hope, whether you're a newer believer or an older believer, that uh, what we review today, and of course we can't study the entire book of Romans in one sermon, but it would be a, a, a review of some central doctrines that might push you in the coming weeks to go back and dig deeper in the book of Romans. So <clears throat> this passage that I just read has been used by some to um, establish a doctrine of prohibiting divorce um, or prohibiting remarriage after divorce. Uh, I'd like to say up front that that's not the purpose of why Paul includes these verses in his letters to the Romans here. Uh, I don't plan on teaching on this particular topic. It would be a fine topic for another time. But um, suffice it to say that marriage is actually of God. We're going to read Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 through 6. I think we should have that up on a slide. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus, and they asked him the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And it's kind of the modern concept of no-fault divorce. And um, Jesus said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so here Jesus establishes what's in the law, which is that he's establishing the strength of what marriage is. The two that come together in marriage are no longer two, but they become one. Marriage isn't man's invention. It's not his social construct or design. It was God's. And in fact, it's the very reason Jesus says why he made them male and female. And yet both Jesus and Paul do list in other passages extreme cases in where uh, divorce uh, is allowed as a concession, for example, in the case of adultery or abandonment. But for the purpose of this study and why Paul is including this passage in this particular place in the letter of the Romans, we're going to think of marriage as it was intended by God and the fullness of its strength and its binding nature. And so today what I'm going to present, and you can put up uh, that first slide, I'm going to present to you what I believe Paul is using this passage as, which is he's using marriage as a parable to explain the old and the new covenant. And in this parable, you, whether you're a man or woman in this room, you, here at the top, the language he often uses to describe you as the wife in this relationship is your mind or your inward man or your inward woman. Now, your first husband, as you can see here on the left, is Adam. Adam is also referred to by Paul as the flesh, the old man, the body of sin, the body of death. But Adam, of course, didn't start off this way. He became that way after he and Eve 
disobeyed God by eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, being married to Adam, you, as his wife, began to become his slave, and you ultimately became a slave of sin. And your slavery of sin led to uncleanness and lawlessness, and ultimately the children that you bore, Adam, is death. The Bible refers to that as your fruit. Now, if you are a Christian, if that has happened to you already, then you have been remarried. And your second husband here is Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And you serve him as a slave of righteousness, and the working out of that service to him produces holiness. And the children you bear him in your relationship or the fruit of that relationship is everlasting life. So that kind of gives you a structure on the slide. We're going to be using this slide. But let me just point you to the verses where this is derived from. Let's, I told you you're going to need your Bible, so turn back one chapter. You can keep the slide up, John. Romans chapter 6, and we will just read through verses 16 through 23. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you then have of the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, how do we go from being a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness? Well, Paul alludes to it in verse 17 where he says, by obeying from the, for that, sorry, from obeying from the heart the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, we're going to unpack what he meant by that as we get a little further towards the end of the message. But for now, let's first examine how your first marriage to Adam worked. Okay, so let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 5. We'll back up one more chapter. Chapter 5, and I'll be reading verse 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who have sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type 
of him to come. So here we see that sin enters the world through Adam and death comes to all humankind as a result of that sin. Death spread to all men ultimately because all men sinned and this applied even in the time frame from Adam to Moses, though the law wasn't actually given until Moses. So what is the sin that he's talking about or the likeness of the transgression of Adam? So to know that, we have to turn back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I think we'll have these verses up on the slides. Here in the garden, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then, fast-forwarding to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the God, garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable for making one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So Adam and Eve were given the work of tending the garden, and were given free access to all the fruit of the trees of the garden which they tended, except for one tree which is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here in the story, Satan appears in the form of a serpent, and tempts eat to eat from the tree, and with her husband, by his silence, giving consent, they both sinned by disobeying God. With that act of sin came the knowledge of good and evil, but with that knowledge was also the awareness that they now had also become evil in the process of gaining that knowledge. And as such, they became aware of their nakedness, and their shame, they hid themselves from God and sought to cover their shame with fig leaves. Now, all Adam and Eve were ultimately banished from the garden for the purpose of barring them access from the tree of life, lest they reach out and live forever infected by the sin that they had consumed. And in Genesis 4, we see the final working out of their sin into lawlessness, which manifested in their son Cain, who ultimately brings forth the first human death by the murdering of his brother Abel. The cycle of sin, lawlessness, and death abounded over the next approximately 1,650 years. And then Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 8, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
in verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so we see this whole flowing forth of the sin, how it leads to lawlessness, and how it leads to death. Of course, we know the story. God destroys the entire earth, all flesh from the face of the earth through a flood, uh, with the exception of saving the family of Noah and the animals that enter the ark with him. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to fast forward over Abraham, fast forward over Isaac and Jacob, his 12 sons, fast forward of Joseph and his rise to power in Egypt, and the movement of the, the children of Israel to Egypt, and then fast forward all the way up in the time of Moses where they leave Egypt, what we call the Exodus. And there on Mount Sinai, as God delivers them, he delivers to them the law. The law. What we often refer to as the Ten Commandments. We might say that's the centerpiece of the law written by the finger of God. What are these Ten Commandments? Well, worship no other gods. Have no other idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet or be jealous of other people's things. Do not commit adultery. That's talking about sexual sin outside of marriage. Do not lie. Honor your mother and father. So back to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense or the sin might abound. Now, why would God do that? I didn't think God liked sin. Why would he put something in that the sin would abound? So here we have to come to the context of understanding the nature of the law. And so... Flip over in your Bibles, Romans chapter 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. Paul starts to get into the subject. We'll read verse 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For what I would, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Then verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. So Paul asked this question, this rhetorical question, is the law sin? What's the answer? No. The law brings about the knowledge of sin. In fact, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. And yet, sin takes opportunity by the law 
to produce all manner of evil desire within me. And it takes occasion by the law to deceive and kill me. Sin without law is weak, but in the presence of law, sin's power is revived. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15.56. Paul says, the sting of death is sin. We saw that from the time of Adam all the way up until Noah. Sin was in the world, there was no law, but death was still abounding. And then he adds, and the strength of sin is the law. From the time of the giving of the law to the time of Christ, we now see sin get much stronger through, actually, the law. So Paul begins this passage in Romans 7 by asking the rhetorical question, is the law sin? Now, I'd like to step back from this a minute and ask sort of propose a rhetorical question that's similar, but let's rewind from the time of Moses and go back to the Garden of Eden. I get asked this question a lot when I teach the book of Genesis in the youth prison uh, to, the, to the teenagers there. So let me ask the question. Is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or its fruit sin? How many say yes? Raise your hand. How many say no? Raise your hand. How many don't know? Okay, good. All right, there we are. So we would know Genesis, it says in Genesis chapter one, we know when the trees were made. They were made on day three. The Bible is very clear what day he made everything and for what purpose he made everything. So he made the trees on day three and at the end of God's completion of his work, what did he say about the completion of his work? Did he say it was good except for everything but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, he said the whole thing was good. It is good, okay? And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as is all the creation is God, is good when used for the purposes intended by God. Now let me rephrase the question. Is the knowledge of good and evil in general, let's leave the tree out of the equation, is the knowledge of good and evil a bad thing? No. No. No, you say. In fact, I believe that God always intended for Adam and Eve to gain the knowledge of good and evil. The tree merely represents the place where the knowledge would be gained. The significance of that tree is only that it would be the place where they would choose and acquire that knowledge. By choosing to disobey and eating its fruit, they gained the knowledge of good and evil while at the same time condemning themselves for their own sin and disobedience. But there was an alternative option. If they had chosen to obey God and resisted the temptation of the serpent, they would have also gained the knowledge of good and evil while condemning the evil in the serpent and exercising the dominion over him that God had given them in the creation mandate. They would have known good and evil because they would have condemned what the serpent had said. The knowledge of good and evil would have been there in either choice, but the choice they chose condemned themselves. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it isn't so much the mystical power of the tree or its fruit, 
Rather, it was the choice that would, they would make at the tree. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that the law is very similar in this way. The law doesn't have any power in itself to make you righteous. What determines whether you are righteous or unrighteous comes down to the decision you will make in light of what the law says. So let me present the three options or choices you can make as you stand before, rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as you stand before the law. On the one hand, you might look at the law and say, no way, that's too hard, life's too short. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow, we're just going to die. Well, the Bible calls that the approach of the heathen. And you are warned, if that is you, that the death will come before you know it. And the judgment for your choice will be far more painful than the sum of all the momentary pleasures of sin you could ever experience in this life. You've stood before the law and you have judged yourself unrighteous. Option number two, you can look at the law and say, hey, I think I can do that. Similar to Eve, who saw the tree was desirable for making one wise, you see and look at the law and say, this is desirable for making one righteous. And this is what most people do when they decide that they want to become religious. <clears throat> but what ultimately everyone figures out with time, except for the hypocrite, is that eventually you realize you can never really work hard enough to complete the righteous requirements of the law. And in spite of all their effort, they also end up judging themselves unrighteous. Romans chapter 7, let, let's keep reading because Paul here, he's, he's going to describe what that relationship with the law looks like. Chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law is good, but now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that's what I end up practicing. Now if I end up doing what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that's dwelling in me. I find then a law that evil is always present with me, the one who wants to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So this passage, it's a very sad description, but it describes what your marriage is like when you're married to Adam. It is a tug of war. Has anyone ever gone through that experience before? I know I have. 
What does the experience like that make you want to do? Well, for me, it makes me want to hide from God. It makes me want to hide from the people of God. And it makes me want to invent all kinds of ways to cover my shame. And ultimately, I end up looking just like Adam and Eve in the garden. So let's look at uh, the next slide there, John. <laughs> so now we're going to add to this slide. We talked about you, your inward man, or your mind. That's you. And you're married to Adam. Theologians call this the Adamic nature. The nature of Adam, which is described as the flesh, the old man, the body of sin. And what has bound you in marriage to Adam? The law. You are bound in marriage to Adam. And as much as you might like a divorce, you can't have one because you're married to Adam. And without exception, you're stuck to him until death. Romans chapter 7, verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So what's the third option that I could choose when I stand before the law and look at what it says about righteousness? Well, there is another choice that actually can lead to your righteousness. And let's look at it here. It's how Paul concludes this passage on Romans 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, Adam? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The purpose of the law is well stated here. It's to lead me to the conclusion that I'm helpless and hopeless without a savior and I need someone who can deliver me. That is the conclusion that brings about the righteousness from the law. It's not a disregarding of the law. Jesus says not a jot or tittle of it will pass away. And it's not trying really hard to keep the works of the law. Romans chapter three, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds or the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. Righteousness can only come to us through the law as we recognize what it reveals about our need for a savior. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Right? The law going through that Romans 7 experience is what you have to go through before you realize, I need a savior. Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you put your faith in Christ, the law has finished its work in your life. So then, what is this death that frees us from the power of the law? Let's bring up the next slide there. We need a death in order for a divorce to happen because that's the only way under the law that divorce in its original intent was uh, a marriage could end. 
And so here we see it here, that death is going to come through Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Let's look in our text in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And skipping down to verse 19 of chapter 5. For as by one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, talking about the work of Christ. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, amen, yes. So then, as we consider that, I mentioned earlier Paul's statement in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, how do we move from becoming slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness? And he said, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So what is that doctrine? What is that teaching that delivers us? So let's keep reading. Romans chapter 6, he talks about it. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man, that old Adam in you, was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you can put up that next slide, John. So the proper response to the righteous demands of the law in light of the Son of God who redeems us by his death. In the book of Romans, if you study more, you'll see there's a first Adam and there's a last Adam. 
Jesus comes in in the flesh as the last Adam. He dies so that you can be freed from the law that binds you to your husband Adam. What then is our response? Well, first our old man, that's our uh, Adamic nature, must be crucified with Christ's. Our body of sin is done away with. And in light of the law, what the law demands, we choose to die with Christ, believing that we will also live with him. The choice to live with Christ is opposed to living in sin is what the Bible calls repentance. It's a choice that we make. And baptism is a symbol of that union where we acknowledge the death that we deserve in light of the righteous demands of the law. We enter that water grave just as Jesus entered a tomb. And then as we raise out of that water, that symbolizes him rising from the dead to walk in newness of life. So in light of that, Paul asked the rhetorical question, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And the answer, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, some wrongly assume from these passages that because Christ is the end of the law for those who believe that Christians no longer need be concerned about sin or righteousness or holiness. On the contrary, Paul presents to us that the righteousness, while not possible through the works of the law, yet that righteousness can and even must be attained through union with a resurrected Christ who fulfills the law. Let's keep reading chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Likewise, you also reckon, or another word would be, consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So you can put up uh, the next slide. Because of the union with Christ here, Paul charges us, we are not to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies, why? Well, now we have a power that we didn't have before. We have a power that allows us to be successful in our efforts to overcome sin, a power that did not exist in the law. So having established our divorce to Adam, we can say goodbye to Adam, he's have his funeral, he's dead, we're now free to remarry. And who do we remarry? the resurrected Christ. And just as the law was the thing that bound us to our old nature, the nature of Adam, something else binds us to this new nature of the resurrected Christ. And what is that? The Holy Spirit. Exactly. Paul teaches that that, that is the function of the Spirit in this relationship. He binds you in marriage to the new nature of the resurrected Christ. That then becomes our power to live a life of righteousness and holiness before him. 
So Romans chapter 7, we'll look at verses 4 through 6. And you, you can leave that slide up, John. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, and we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. We were bound by law and marriage to Adam. We died through Christ's body. And then, as that happened, the strength and passion of sin that was gained through the law, that ended. And sin, while it is still tempting, it's weakened because we've died to the law. Sin no longer has the advantage that it once had against us in that because we're not under law, but rather we're under grace. And now we're free to be married to another, the resurrected Christ. Rather than the law being what binds us to Adam in marriage, the spirit binds us to our resurrected Christ. And so Paul can declare in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weakened through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So how does this work out in practicality? How is it that the spirit binds us to our new husband? One of my favorite verses when I think of talking about the Holy Spirit is Romans 5.5. 5. I think we, I don't know if you have that, John, but uh, it says, it's a simple verse, it says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The power of the Spirit is the power of God's sacrificial love manifested in our lives through the gospel. It's a transformative love. Paul continues to describe it here in Romans chapter 8, verse 10 and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors. We are, uh, excuse me, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
In Romans chapter 7, Paul likens this new covenant relationship to marriage. Romans chapter 8, he compares it to the adoption of children. So the key to understanding life in the spirit is to understand, number one, that it is relational, and number two, that it is binding. Both marriage and adoption were binding legal arrangements at the time where someone who by nature was not family was made permanently a family member. Okay, so we've talked a lot about this theology. So let's step back in our last few minutes and talk practically. I think one of the challenges believers sometimes run into as they begin to think about this, that the law is powerless and the works are powerless, and they begin to uh, get confused in how to live that new covenant life and yet not do it by the works of the law. And sometimes I think the challenge is, is that sometimes people could see any type of activity as a form of work. And as a general rule, the Bible uh, doesn't consider every activity a form of work. When the Bible talks about work in general, it's usually, it's often used in the terms of, you know, a task or something that you do that would be traded for a wage, just like when you go to your job. You do something and, and they pay you for it. In Genesis 1, we see God working. It's a creative work. Nobody's paying him to do it, but we get a good sense of what work in the Bible means from that. It's characterized by periods, time of effort, often intense effort. And at the end of the period, there's an assessment of whether the work has been good or bad. In God's case, this work is always good. And then it's also characterized by an end point where we rest from our work. Even God rested from his work on the seventh day. So as a general, that's the type of work we're talking about. And it applies to jobs. I generally enjoy my job. It requires me to think creatively, sometimes urgently, to solve problems. Some problems that just haven't been solved before. And on my desk, I have a piece of paper with a pending list of items that need to be completed. And my favorite part is when I get to scratch through one of those pending items and say, finished. And although I like my job, I really do look forward to the end of work when I can come home in the evenings. I also look forward to the weekends where I can rest from my work. If I do my work well, my boss sometimes responds by rewarding me with either a promotion or a raise. And work in this context is not bad. It actually mirrors God's work of creation in Genesis 1. When I'm home, however, there are many other activities that need to be done. Some of you know that Emily and I, my wife, we have a child now. He's three months old. And one of my activities in the evening, uh, I give Emily a break. She does her you know, shower and the things she needs to do. And I give Jonathan a bath. And then I feed him before we go to bed. Now, this activity really doesn't require much of any creativity. It uh, doesn't require a lot of you know, intellectual ability. It's a task that I can really never cross off the lift because no sooner have I given him a bath that he's just spit up on himself again. It's just a repetitive task that has to be done. And so it's not something that, you know, ever seems to really end in the way my work tasks do. I don't really have an opportunity to get a raise or promotion from bathing or feeding him more efficiently or more quickly. 
And yet I enjoy giving Jonathan a bath in a very different way that I enjoy doing the work at my job. My job, the joy is finishing the task well. With Jonathan, my joy is doing the task with him. Whether we're putting the soap on and getting all the little spit-up stuff and his little fat neck washed out or little cuddles we have and we're drying off and his little towel, he has a cute little towel with a dragon kind of hoodie thing that goes around his head that he likes. Putting the lotion on him, he smiles with that. That's what we do, that's our nightly ritual and I just enjoy doing it with him. Now I have the option, I could see that task as work and I could be frustrated that I have to do it. Man, I worked all day long and now I gotta come home and bathe this kid. I could rush through it and try to get him to bed so I could have some time on my own to whatever, scroll on social media or something. Or I could see this activity as time that we get to enjoy together. Now I've given you one example, but there are many other activities in a family which are necessary, they're necessary activities, but they can be viewed as work or they could be viewed as opportunities for affection, union, joy, and love. So whether you want to talk about making dinner for your family, going on a walk or a date, sex with your spouse, you could see these activities as works, meaning let's get this over so I can check it off the list, or you could see these activities as opportunities to love and enjoy each other. Now let me translate my little categories of activities back into our relationship with God. We no longer have to do the works of the law, meaning like I don't have to keep the Ten Commandments over here and at the end of the day say, did I do good or bad? The works of the law are over for me. I'm a believer in Christ. I don't have to judge myself at the end of the day like I would a job of how well I accomplished the Ten Commandments. But there are many other activities that are part of a relationship with God. So let me ask you, how do you view your daily devotional time with the Lord? The time where you read the Bible, you just let the Word inspire you to worship or to pray. How do you view service in the church? How do you view fasting or giving? Do you see these as works? Are you doing them because you're hoping to earn a blessing from God? Is your joy in these activities being able to just be satisfied by checking it off the list? Wow, I had a devotional time five out of the seven days this week. I did it. Well, that's a works-based mindset. It will offer you virtually no power to overcome sin in your life. And I can almost guarantee you that mindset will not be sustainable over the entire course of your life. Alternatively, you could see these activities as opportunities to experience God. We have the worship team come up, the prayer partners. Most mornings when I have my devotional time, I wish that I could spend more time with the Lord, but I have to stop it because I have to go to work. And that's a good place to be in. I don't see my devotional time as work any more than I see giving Jonathan a bath 
or spending a romantic evening with my wife. Those activities are not work to me. My spiritual activities are similar to my familial activities. They're merely a means of expressing union and love. Life in union with Christ is a life full of activities. I've just named a few. Prayer, Bible reading, fasting, giving, Christian service, fellowship, confession, accountable relationships, praying for each other. All of these are activities that are part of the new covenant relationship of Christ. And these are activities which are anointed by the Holy Spirit in a way that brings joy. And that joy is the power to overcome sin. So, for those, Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So I would like to offer an invitation. Perhaps you've heard the gospel. Maybe you're a person who's never been divorced from Adam. Like that first side of the chart just describes you. You know that you're sinful. You know you don't have the power to become righteous in yourself. And you want to just die to your old self and say, I want to unite with Christ in death. I acknowledge I can't do it. I cannot make myself righteous by the works of the law. I need a savior. Maybe that's you. Today could be your day of salvation. You can come up and pray with one of the prayer partners. Or maybe you're a believer who started out well. That relationship with God started out good, but then all of a sudden it started turning into work. And all the activities that are to be enjoyed in the family of God have become a chore to you. Well, today is a day where you can repent of that works-based mindset. God wants to experience you in those activities. So let me pray, and then you can come forward. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word. I just pray you would use it in our lives, Lord. We desire to be vessels in which the power of the Spirit works righteousness, holiness, and eternal life, Lord. We desire to be vessels that you love to be with, Lord. God, to be in your arms, Lord. To be bathed by you. God, that's what we desire. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.